what made you decide to write about comfort? Isn't comfort a good thing, Michael? What is going on? Well, you have a problem with comfort? I don't have a problem with comfort. I do have a problem with always being comfortable, always leaning into comfort, which is what we're doing now. Yeah. At no point in daily life, I would argue, are people really challenged or really uncomfortable. What was the wildest or most interesting statistic or story that you read while you were writing and researching your book about social media consumption or screen time or this trend towards comfort amongst young people? Was there something that really stood out? There are a lot that really stood out, but since you cued me with the social media mention, so I think what's interesting is uh, the average person now spends 11 hours a day engaging with digital media. And what I think is uh, important to realize about that stat is all this stuff is not even 100 years old. I mean, radio started in the 20s, then we get TV, then we get computers, then we get cell phones. So like humans went from 2.5 million years of no digital media in their lives to like now it's become our lives. And that has had some definite profound impacts on how we view the world, not only that, but experience our lives. Um, And I could go on forever with a bunch of different stats, so I can, but maybe we start there. You know, I talked to a historian that kind of shocked me. He told me when popular mainstream books came out many years ago, that people were like, people are going to be distracted by these books. And you mentioned radio and television. There are always these distraction technologies throughout human history. But maybe because I'm young, and I haven't experienced the rise of those technologies, social media feels fundamentally different. There are algorithms involved. They are supercomputers in our pocket with our mobile devices. Is it fair to say that social media is in fact a giant leap that is different or throughout human history or the last hundred years we've been battling these distraction technologies or is this whole social media thing it on steroids? I think it's it on steroids. So if you look at the history of uh, attention, trying to get uh, the push to grab people's attention, it really started with these newspapers back in the 1800s called the penny presses. And basically what this guy did um, is he realized, I have this newspaper. I don't make money from selling my newspaper. I make money from getting as much attention as I can and then selling that to advertisers. So he had a lot of really clever ways to do that. The one that's important for our sake in this conversation is that newspapers before him, they ran boring stuff, to be quite honest. It was like business and politics, and there wasn't much like flair. He was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start running stories about murder and violence and like theft and just the craziest stuff he could because he goes, I know that's going to grab people's attention. I mean, that's what we gravitate to, right? And there are evolutionary reasons for this because this is taps into this idea that as we evolved, we wanted information that had a survival benefit. So this taps into this evolutionary mechanism we had. Now, fast forward, this is still how we grab people's attention, right? When you look at uh, what gets most clicked on, what gets upvoted, what gets shared, it tends to be stuff that is controversial or is somewhat negative, right? And I think what's really changed, though, is now we have algorithms, right? (laughs) So before... Like I came up in print magazines. I worked at Men's Health for a lot of years. I've written for a lot of places. When we would sell print ads to, uh, to when we would be doing um, print ads with a company, the idea was like, hey, 
People are going to see this. They're going to engage with it. How do you measure it? Trust us. Trust us. Now we have these, we have algorithms and data that we know how long people engage with ads and content, and we know what makes people click and stay on. So that's really what's changed is now we can basically almost hack it, if you will. When you talked about the business model of newspapers and how that changes, I've always looked at distraction technologies in two ways. And I don't know, on one side, I've always felt like humans, whether it's we're getting really deep talking about distraction from their problems, distraction from existential problems, is there a modern human need for distraction or a a natural inclination to be distracted because of the problems in our lives? Or is distraction simply just a business? It has people don't naturally want to be distracted, but distraction is a business and that business will hook people. Or is there a bit of a balance in both? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer that question um, this way. So in reporting this book that I wrote called The Comfort Crisis, I spent more than a month up in the Alaskan Arctic. Now we were, we were hunting. And a big part of that is sitting and waiting for these animals to come through. And you know what happens when you sit there without cell service and you didn't bring any books or magazines? You get bored. And it's like, humans don't get bored anymore, right? Because we have all this really easy, effortless ways to essentially fix our boredom really quickly. Cell phone. If it's not a cell phone, then it's Netflix. If it's not Netflix, it's a screen. It's a computer screen, whatever. But boredom is actually this evolutionary discomfort that we evolved to have because it provided a survival benefit. So when we were doing something and the return on our time invested had worn thin, boredom kicks on, it's uncomfortable. It tells us, hey, go do something else because this isn't really helping your life. So an example would be, let's say we were out hunting and the animals just weren't coming through. All of a sudden the hunt is like, this is boring. Let's go do something else. Let's go pick some berries. Let's go find some fruit. Let's go do something else. Right. So we'd always be kind of thrust into something that improved our life. But nowadays it's like we feel that discomfort. We have this super easy, effortless way to cure it from our phone or from some other digital media distraction. I don't know if that answered your question, but. So that, there's no argument that the average person actually gets a measurable mental health benefit from being distracted from the struggles in their lives. The average person below the poverty line, they don't have much going on. There's tragedy naturally in human existence. Is there an argument that those who are heavily distracted are almost numb to their problems? Or that's just that's just the easy way out. We shouldn't even acknowledge that. Yeah, I think that there, I mean, you can distract yourself, right? I mean, but I think that at the same time, it's like we know that from years of data that humans um, thrive on challenges. We need challenge in our life. Sometimes going through hard, difficult things is how we grow and improve. So there's this uh, concept that I talk about in the book called toughening. And it basically shows, this research shows that you, they've pulled people and they've asked, you know, how many like really challenging things have happened in your life? Tragedies, stuff like that. They find that, unsurprisingly, the people who have had a ton and ton of challenges thrown their way, they don't have great mental health. 
At the same time, people who have had no challenges in their life have equally bad mental health. It's the people who are sort of in the middle, who've had a few challenges thrown their way, they've learned something from them, they've come out stronger. Those people tend to have the best uh, mental health. So we know that, like, if you're constantly distracting yourself from anything that comes your way, you're not really getting to the real problem and trying to fix that, right? It's like being part of being a human is like feeling things. We have a lot, lot of ways to not feel things today. Is it fair to say you're talking about kind of a balance where if you don't have discomfort and challenges, you are less happy and productive. If you have too many, it can be overwhelming. Is it fair to say that cliche that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is inaccurate? Meaning if you keep coming close to death in whether it's psychological or genuine physical, that that is just trauma and PTSD, that in fact, this is a balanced conversation of discomfort, pushing yourself to the extremes is uh, maybe, maybe not the way to go. Yes, 100%. Um, So it's like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger until it does, or like (laughs) until it does kill you, right? So I think that we, I think one of the, one of the things I talk about in this book is that like, The world as a whole has gotten a lot better over time, right? People are, I'm not saying we don't still have problems, but I am saying you're less likely to starve to death. Um, You're less likely to die before you're five years old. You um, probably don't have to put a ton of physical effort into your work anymore. Like there's all these measures. People live longer, people, whatever. Um, And as that's happened, we've you know, added more years to our life, but we haven't necessarily become happier. And I think part of the problem is because we've engineered all challenges out of our life. And especially, I know that um, you mentioned people who listen to this tend to be between 18 and 28. So one thing that happened is in 1990, this kicked off the helicopter parenting generation. And basically, uh, this was all started because there had been some high profile kidnappings So all of a sudden, you know, parents are watching the news and they're like, I can't let my kid go outside. They're going to get kidnapped. Now, the reality was kidnapping rates were actually declining over time, but there was just a couple high profile cases. So it made it seem like kidnapping was this thing that was going to happen. So parents stopped letting their kids go outside. And when you're outside kind of roughing it, you know, you're kind of getting into trouble. You're like facing some challenges, like you're going out and you're learning about yourself. Um, But that stopped happening. So you start to see uh, mental health problems really rise in the generations after the 90s. And now I think it is um, even worse that we have the the sort of introduction of snowplow parenting, which I'm sure you guys have heard about, where it's like helicopter parenting, but on steroids, where it's like parents are just like any and all challenge, we got to get it out of our kid's life, right? So there's a good example of that would be the parents who basically paid to get their kids into USC and stuff like that. It's such an interesting time in human history. You know, I had a health expert on and we talked about the technology with agriculture and food manufacturing, where for the first time in human history, we actually need to say, whoa, we need to have discipline. We can't eat everything. But that is a drastic change in humans. There was a time where you had to eat everything as fast as you can and as often as possible. And then I spoke to someone about minimalism on the podcast, and I said, what a weird time where all we wanted was technology and innovation, and 
now people are happier with mindfulness and they want minimal possessions and an apartment with just a bed and a table. And in many ways, now talking about comfort, is it fair to say that this is a pivot point in history where comfort is actually a uh, has gone too far and discomfort is a benefit? Or it, do you notice that this is a, a cultural pivot point and it kind of almost showcases the luxury and the progress of humans that now we're talking about actually putting ourselves through challenges because we're too comfortable? This is almost a conversation about how we've done too well. Mm-hmm. We have done too well. <laughs> so anthropologists call this an evolutionary mismatch. This is when you have, um, you develop uh, through evolution, you develop traits that really make sense and help you survive in a certain environment, but then your environment changes. And then all of a sudden these traits you have backfire. So to bring it to comfort, it's like humans evolved to always try and do what is going to be most comfortable. So in our past environments where there were challenges, where things were uncomfortable and not easy, this basically told us, hey, you're hungry, you need to go out and get food. And then when you find that food, you need to eat as much of it as possible, because that's going to give you a survival benefit. You'll add fat to your frame. And next time you maybe face like a famine, you're more likely to survive. It told us to not move any more than we needed to. Because you don't want to burn energy just for the sake of it. This is why still today exercise sucks. Why no one wants to exercise, right? On and on. Avoid being cold. Avoid being too hot. Avoid all these things. But nowadays it's like we've engineered all this food into our life. We no longer have to work for it. We can live in 72 degrees if we want to. On and on and on. So this drive we have to always be comfort, comfortable, it backfires, right? It tells us don't exercise. Eat too much. Uh, avoid all risk, uh, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. And so it sort of backfires and really changes uh, our physical and mental health and also like how we experience the world as a human. It's interesting uh, thinking about like saunas, the benefits of saunas, how we, we have this perfect climate and now it's time to stress your body or cryotherapy where now you're going to take an ice bath and freeze. Um, more on a personal note about writing the comfort crisis, Writing a book is not a evenings and weekends projects for a lot of people. It is a it is a labor of love and it takes a lot of time and a lot of citations and a lot of edits and a lot of stress. So what motivated you and created urgency to say, oh, this is the time for this book. I'm going to dedicate my next year, two years to putting this together. Yeah. So for me, when I was, uh, so I'm 34, yeah, 34 now. You start to just forget about birthdays after you hit 30, guys. Um, so when I was, uh, 28, I got sober. So I grew up, um, in my dad wasn't around, but all the men in my family, including my dad's, so who I don't know him, um, were just hell on wheels. They're like, they're drinkers, you know, like just the family stories that uh, we have are, are hilarious, but also like kind of terrifying. You know, it's like all the men in the Easter family have jail records, et cetera, et cetera. And I basically found myself going down that same path. And it, it was all basically because we like to drink. And when we drink, we unfortunately don't go, you know, donate to widows and orphans and read classic works. We, you know, we start hell. And um, getting sober is super uncomfortable, right? It's like alcohol works. That's the thing you know. It's how you stay within your comfort zone. It's how you feel, you know, you get that liquid courage, et cetera, et cetera. And when you get rid of that, it's like, well, what do I do now? And that is uncomfortable. 
And so that's sort of, but going through that, drying out, all of a sudden my life got better across the board, like full stop, right? And so I could see, all right, sometimes in order to improve your life, you have to go through discomfort. And I could also see this in the work I did for men's health. It's like, if you want to improve your fitness, you're going to have to work out. Working out is uncomfortable. If you want to lose weight, you're probably going to have to change your diet. You're probably going to be hungry. That's uncomfortable. So I could kind of see that there's this benefit in going through discomfort. And really, I wanted to know, well, why is that? And that sort of started this journey where I spent all this time in the Arctic and traveled the world, spoke to all these different experts. And that's what set the whole thing off. Yeah. We talked about, you know, social media and Netflix as being these great distractions, but you mentioned alcohol and addiction. Is it fair to say throughout human history and still to this day that beyond social media, beyond Netflix, beyond our modern uh, distractions, that addiction and substances are the ultimate way to distract yourself from the big questions and the big challenges of life? Yeah, I think they, I think they definitely have been. I think that there, it kind of depends on who you are. It's like, so da- the, the, the writer David Foster Wallace, Wallace said everyone, you know, worships something. It's like, what's it going to be? We all kind of have that thing, I think, that um, allows us to numb out. So for me, that was definitely alcohol. Um, for other people, it's drugs. But for some people, it's shopping. It's like, why is minimalism a thing? Because now we can just buy all this shit on Amazon. You know, it's like there's so many different ways to distract yourself, as you put it, you know. And so I think it's like finding what is this thing that is potentially um, you're using to numb yourself from some bigger thing that you want to avoid. The title of your book, The Comfort Crisis, you didn't say um, challenge yourself or don't be too comfortable. The word crisis is probably intentional and incredibly powerful. So with the word crisis, what are some of the greatest risks to young people that live in the too comfortable zone? Yeah. So if you think about um, our food system, it is built around foods that are formulated in a lab and based on consumer feedback to make us feel good, right? We use often use food not for sustenance, but as a widget to deal with stress or whatever it might be. So you look at the data and more than 70% of Americans right now are overweight or obese. Now, you may not be overweight or obese yet because you're 18, 20, 22, but if you keep eating in a certain way and certain foods, uh, it's coming. Also, lack of fitness. It's like people, our environments used to force us to move around all day. So you look at the data and our ancestors moved 14 times more than us every day. They were just working all day physically. Um, now we've engineered our world exercise and movement out of our days. And we also have these drives to, to not exercise. Well, this is one of the main reasons why chronic disease is so high. Like maintaining a decent fitness level is the best thing you can do to ward off disease and death. Again, it's like, this is hard to see when you're 20, whatever, but you need to get these habits going now because it's a lot harder to make up ground when you're 40, 50, 60, than it is just to like do some basic stuff now. Um, anxiety, depression. I think that that can really be tied back to our reliance on 
digital media and just we're never bored anymore. We're never with ourselves. We always want a constant distraction. We hate, like you look at the data now, people hate being alone. But if you're just alone with yourself without any outside influence from not just other people like physically in the room with you, but even through your phone. Cause we're always, even when we're alone, we're like texting or we're listening to other people talk on a, you know, on the radio or whatever. Um, but you can learn a lot about yourself and sort of get to the center of like, who am I? If you just spend some time alone. There's a, a true value in boredom and we see it with like mindfulness and meditation. People see a great deal of value meditating and being mindful, but in my personal life, when I'm bored, when the phone is off, I can enter a flow state. I can be far more creative. So maybe let's talk about the benefits of boredom, whether it's creativity or um, introspection. I feel like we should definitely outline the the various benefits of being bored, phone off. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned I was up in the Arctic for all that time and we have these boring times. So I didn't have that easy access to my cell phone. It's like, so what did I do? I'm like, you know, I kind of really noticed the landscape, which you don't ever like, how often do you like go out into nature and just observe? Like it's exceedingly calming. Um, And then when that got kind of boring after a certain amount of time, it's like, oh, maybe I'll write some of my book. So I pull out this notepad, write some of my book. That eventually gets boring. I'm like, well, Christmas is coming up. Let's get our Christmas list all done, right? Like I start to do these things that like I wouldn't have ever done had I had my cell phone there. I would have been watching like some freaking stupid thing on Instagram, right? So having these moments of boredom, it yells at your brain to do something. And if you don't cave into the easiness of your cell phone, that's something I can guarantee you will probably be far more productive. Um, Not only productive, but also creative. So you look at there's studies where they, it's kind of messed up studies, but they get people really, really bored. They have them watch like a 10 minute video of two men folding laundry. And then they have them take creativity tests. Well, it turns out that the people who have been bored do a lot better on creativity tests than the people who just like have been on their cell phone and then they're like, hey, take this creativity test. Because there's something about boredom where it like allows our minds to start to wander. We no longer have time where we just sit inside our heads and let our minds wander. Now, sometimes your mind wanders to weird, strange places and there's nothing there. But sometimes there is something there. And I can guarantee you that something is probably going to be more interesting than anything you're going to find on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever you spend your time on. In many ways, also in my own life, discomfort creates jarring contrast when I put myself into a very uncomfortable situation where I'm in over my head whether it's business or in the arts or whatever or even in this podcast when I'm having conversations with Harvard professors and I am drastically stupider than the guest I'm speaking to trying to keep it together that is incredibly uncomfortable in that one hour show but when I pick up my phone and I call somebody else or I'm in a social setting the contrast between that uncomfortable complex conversation and having a social interaction, it's like night and day. Or in a, an anxiety sense, if you throw yourself into a, a socially anxious moment and you're introducing yourself, next time you, know, you might give better eye contact when you're at a, a coffee shop or you might introduce yourself to somebody. So in many ways, does discomfort also create jarring contrast when you really put in an uncomfortable moment 
the rest of your life start seeing a lot more easy and manageable, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that that um, I definitely can identify with uh, talking to people who are way smarter than you. So being a journalist, it's like I, you know, I have to talk to also scientists at Harvard, and you're just trying to keep up and keep it together. But that helps me in all my other conversations, right? It's like I learn how to sort of think on my toes, how to talk to people who are uh, vastly different from me, all these, all these different things. And yes, we know that like in terms of something like anxiety or like performance anxiety, like the more you avoid it, the worse it gets. It's like a, it's like a rock in your shoe. Keep on walking. It doesn't ever get better. It just burrs. It just makes the hole bigger, right? But by facing this stuff, yes, it's uncomfortable. But then you get on the other side and you learn like, well, I survived and I'm okay. And the world is still standing. Oh, okay. So there's this idea I talk about in my book. There's this thing called um, Misogi. I met this guy who's a, he went to Harvard Medical School. He decided he's not going to be a doctor. He's going to get into sports science. So this was in the early 2000s. Because sports science at the time was like very rudimentary. It was kind of like, I'm going to count your sets and reps. And that was it, right? So he applies all this like data and algorithms and like movement data. And I told you that to basically tell you he's really into like the data and science element. But he also knows that what improves humans, uh, athletes, people getting into business, et cetera, et cetera, can always be measured. So he does this thing. He calls it Masogi. And he'll take out pro athletes. He has contracts like with the NBA, with the NFL, whatever. And once a year, they do really one really, really freaking hard thing out in nature. And it teaches something about themselves. So there's only two rules. It has to be really hard, which they define by saying you have a 50% chance of finishing, like true 50% chance. And then two, you can't die. So they do things like one year they got an 85-pound boulder and they walked it uh, five miles underneath the Santa Barbara Channel. It was like him and a couple NBA guys and a couple, there was like an artist or two. Um, But along the way, what happens is that like they get put in a position where they're like, I can't do this. Like, I'm going to fail at this. There's no way. Like my edge, I'm I'm coming up on my edge. I'm going to have to quit. But all of a sudden they cross that edge and they're still going. And so then you can look back and be like, well, I thought my edge was here, but I'm clearly past it. So I've sold myself short. And then it's like, how else have I sold myself short in my life? Like, how else am I underselling myself? And so I think we find that um, when we go out and do hard, uncomfortable things or just face discomfort head on that we often think that we're only capable of so much. But the reality is, is that humans are capable of way, way, way more than we believe we are. And this made sense in our past as we evolved. Like you would, you want to be a person who thinks you can't do a lot, but then if you get face, if you have to face down a tiger, like you're actually a lot more capable than you thought. Cause that would provide a survival benefit, right? You don't want to be a person who's like, I'm the man, I can do anything. And then you go out and then you just get your butt kicked and you die, right? Those people would never survive. On that note, you know, we hear a lot of people my age, the like a loneliness crisis in many ways. And d- excluding the pandemic for obvious reasons over the past year and a half, I'm sure loneliness crisis is going to go on post pandemic. And it certainly was before this being overly comfortable in a social setting. And, you know, you're just on your phone sending DMs and texts. And, you know, you don't want to push yourself to introduce yourself to someone in a social setting. 
do you think also our our comfort crisis in terms of communication on mobile and just strictly I'm in the comfort of my room I'm going to send this text I'm going to send this DM I'm going to use a a, a dating app versus I'm I'm going to go out I'm going to offer eye contact I might be told to kick rocks and that I'm not invited in this group does that also play a big factor in this issue with loneliness which is like seems like at least I don't know if the data suggest this but it certainly seems like young people are as lonely or seemingly as lonely as ever yeah you're definitely right and i mean i think it's look communicating with someone via text is a lot easier or on a dating app and this is because the human brain loves uh predictable controllable environments that's because that used to keep us safe in our past. If we knew where our next food source was coming from, uh, what the weather was going to look like, that could help us survive. But now that oversteps its old boundaries. And now we want to try and get ourselves in any predictable scenario. So with something like a, like a text conversation, if I go to say something and I'm like, mm, I don't know if I like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delete, delete, delete and say it this other way. Eh, maybe I'll say it this way, right? Whereas if you and I are talking right now, if I say something stupid, well, it's on the record, right? So this essentially keeps us from having these face-to-face interactions. Of course, we still have them. Don't get me wrong, but like we're more likely to lean into communication um, through text. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about loneliness and um, technology today is that, and I kind of alluded to this before, but you know, when I was in Alaska, like I had moments where there were not, there was not another person hundred miles, like within a hundred miles and my cell phone didn't work. And it's like all of a sudden when all people around you are removed from the equation and all people in the form of your texts and your DMs and TV, et cetera, those get removed. All of a sudden it's like, wow, like I've, this is the most alone I've ever been. And you start to wonder like society gets removed from the equation. So much of what we do now is because like society just kind of tells us to. It's like, why do you go to college? Not your parents told you to. That's what people do. Why'd you take this job? Yeah, you know, I'm supposed to make money and blah, blah, blah. Well, why are you getting married at 23? Well, yeah, you, get, you just get married, you know? Why you buy a house? Oh yeah, people buy a house after they get married. Like we have this social narrative, right? And so I think that if you can, um, there's this idea, these scientists I talked to, uh, they called it, building the capacity to be alone. It's like, can you be alone with yourself? Use that time to get to know yourself and benefit from it. See what you truly want to do with your life and what direction you want to take your life in. Like, what do you, what do you really like? Like, I didn't even start thinking about this shit until I was like 28 years old. I just did what I was told, right? It's like, oh yeah, I think I would probably look good socially if I went to grad school. Why did I choose to go to the expensive school? Because it made me look better socially. Paid a lot of money for that, right? So we kind of do, we just follow this social narrative and we don't have time where we pull back and go, why the hell am I doing all this stuff? You know? So having that time in solitude and using that for benefit, I think is particularly good um, for younger people. We talked a lot about the mental health aspects of too much comfort, but There's also uh, our physical bodies that are very much associated with our mental health and the way we think and our confidence. So I wanted to talk about pushing ourselves physically 
um, and getting out of our comfort zones and how that affects us as well. Because every high-level athlete I know, any uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu person that I know, for whatever reason, they walk with a different confidence, a quiet confidence. And while they are probably far more dangerous if they wanted to be, they seem like the most like calm person in the room. And I've always found the correlation between somebody that pushes their bodies physically also just mentally has a different sense of zen and calm. So maybe let's talk about the, the physical aspects of too much comfort. And if in fact, those who do push themselves physically outside of their comfort zones actually do have a, a higher level of peace or calm or patience with their mental health. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of reasons for what you've observed. Um, for one is that exercise grows the hippocampus, which is an area in the brain. Um, when it gets shrunken, um, it tends to be associated with a lot higher rates of depression. Um, I also think you just learn what you're capable of and you don't necessarily feel like you have to prove yourself. I was talking to, um, the guy who founded those Spartan races and he talked about, and I've noticed this in my own career, like you meet like interviewing gold medal Olympians and UFC fighters. Like when you shake their hands, they're not trying to like over grip it and whatever. It's just kind of like, Hey, what's up, man? Cause it's like, they know, right? Like they don't have anything to prove. And I think that the, phys the physical element uh, is a big driver that I also think it burns off extra energy you might have. So you're just more calm. I mean, we know from like years and years of research that, um, exercise doesn't just help us physically, um, but also psychologically. And I think it helps people realize, um, what they are capable of. And in our past environments that were uncomfortable, we like, we, we just had to do stuff. We had to do hard stuff all the time, right? We had to go on these big Epic hunts. We would have to move from, you know, our summering to our wintering grounds. That could be like a 200 mile trek across mountains. We had to face down, you know, tigers in the wild, whatever it might be. But nowadays, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. So we don't have these moments of challenge where there's a physical element where we learn something about ourselves and what we're capable of. So kind of one of the messages of this book is that I want people to start introducing metaphorical tigers in their life by going out and doing hard things. This idea of Masogi, I think, is powerful because it's like, just pick something that you think you only have a 50% chance of doing like a true 50% chance and go out and try it. Like what's the worst that can happen? So an example would be like, if you've never run more than three miles, well, does, do you think you could do six? Maybe I could do six. What about seven or eight? Well, I don't know if I could do eight. Okay, we'll go try it. Like what's the worst that's gonna happen? Bring your cell phone. If you fail, call your girlfriend, call your boyfriend, whatever it is, have them come pick you up, you'll survive. But you'll get to that point I talked about where you know, maybe by mile five, you're like, there's no way I can do this. I'm, I'm not gonna be able to finish. But you just kind of keep going and you realize that you sold yourself short, you know? So I think we need to start doing some of that stuff to sort of reinsert those tigers, you know? Yeah, I mean, centuries ago, there used to be these rites of passage and, you know, you brought up the helicopter parents. So this does sound like, and in many important things foundationally, it starts at a young age, culturally, whether it is a parent guiding whether it is a school system. So since we talked about helicopter parents, what is a, a way that young people should start getting introduced to challenges? You know, I remember 
a few years ago, the viral story of all the schools that now are doing participation trophies and stuff, showcasing this trend in a very kind of concerning way. Um, so let's talk about like how to talk to a young person and how parents can start creating this balance of comfort. You're safe, you're secure, but you got to push it versus uh, the eighth place person getting a first place trophy. Yeah. I think that um, we need to spend more time outside, especially doing like interesting stuff. So you look at the research and people spend 95% of their time inside. We evolved spending literally all of our time outside, right? And so this is why when you look at the science, we know time in nature is really good for our mental and physical health. Now, we don't want to go outside because, again, back to that idea I talked about, it's like being outside is unpredictable. It's too hot. It's too cold. Well, what's going to happen with the weather? Oh, I'm far away from home where I know my pantry is. What happens if I see a coyote, you know? But by getting outside, like we, we have, we get pickled into doing some things where we learn something about ourselves and sort of back to the idea, idea of Masogi. It's like, go outside, just try something you don't think you're capable of. See what happens. Like that's such a good first step. I think like I don't have kids, but if I did, I would be sending them on outward bounds every year. I would be, I would definitely enroll them in sports for sure. Cause I think that's good participation trophies, um, you know, notwithstanding. And I would just let them play outside a ton. It's like so many kids, like certain states have had to pass laws that say you can't get arrested if you let your kid go play at the park alone. It's like, that's insane, you know? So I think we just need to like get, I mean, just do something. It's like, we know that our problem is that we sit around on our phones for eight hours a day eating crappy food. It's like, we know, we kind of all intuitively know what the solution is but we just don't take the jump. So it's like, you got to take that jump, you know? What are your thoughts on practical digital minimalism, a practical way to not be on email and phones all day? Because, you know, I have a team and I have a business and I get frantic calls every two hours and I got an email that says urgent and I had to speak to your publicist and you have a, you know, you have a publisher that probably wants you to commit to various different things and deadlines. So in a very, you know, real world as two people that are very much in business with a lot of people that rely on us, what, how does practical digital minimalism come into this in, in an ambitious sense? I assume balance and boundaries is all we got because the reality is we both got to, we got to check our calendars every mm -hmm. once in a while. Totally. So I go back to the idea of boredom. Um, you find that a lot of today, the messaging is you need to spend less time on your phone. You need to spend less time on your phone. It's like, yeah, we all get it. We all know. But a lot of times when people use their phone less, they like sub it with Netflix time or they sub it with time on their computer. It's like, it's all the damn same. Like your brain doesn't know the difference. So for me personally, I do a lot of uh, walks outdoors without my phone. I'll do like 20 20 minutes to an hour every day because it just allows me time to completely disconnect some time to be bored, some time to come up with ideas, some time to be outside. And I'm also walking. So I'm getting some exercise. A lot of times I'll like carry a heavy pack. So then that makes it a little bit harder, you know? So I think that it's just finding time to be completely unplugged and like, what are the consequences? 
if you miss a, if you're late on an email, like what's the worst that can happen? You missed an email and, and you and I have to reschedule this. What do you think I'm going to do? Be like, screw that kid. Never talking to him. Yeah. It's like, no, the world goes on. Like we get so wrapped up in the, like the pace of stuff and everything feels like an emergency in the digital age. Literally nothing is an emergency. If all of a sudden the IRS showed up and they were like, Hey, Michael, I'm taking all of your stuff. What would happen to me? Do you think I just wander out into the desert? I live in Las Vegas and die. No, I'd figure it out. Like the world is safe enough now that you're going to live on. And they also find that like you look at research on happiness and once you have your most basic needs met, there's not like, you don't get that much happier from getting a lot more money. Like you don't, it's learning to live with like, find some sort of higher purpose. So I think it's really that. And I don't know that, you know, the franticness of, of life is always the higher purpose. I think like, what's, what's your big goal here and go for that and try and reduce the noise on the outside. It's funny how you talked about how people supplement one for the other. And I didn't even think of that. All the people that say, I don't use Instagram, but are on Twitter. Or, I don't yeah. use social media, but I am, spend seven hours on Netflix. So the idea of a, a total break from digital seems pretty crucial. Um, but wrapping up, I love asking this question to authors. Let's say I just finished the last page of your book, just closed it. I'm done, moved it to the side. What do you hope as an author who put in a lot of hard hours hope a young person takes away from what they've just read? Uh, I hope you try and go do something cool outside. Um, but I also hope that you, for me at least, doing this book, and I'll tell you a story. So when, um, so I'm in Alaska in the backcountry for like 30 days. Everything is difficult. Like just to get water, we'd have to walk down like a mile to this stream, carry this heavy water bags up if we wanted to drink and cook our food and all that. It's always cold. Um, there's wild animals out there. There's like grizzlies, right? So after 30 days, we get back uh, to civilization, which is this really crappy little town in Alaska that's on this point. And the airport is like a shed, right? But the shed has um, a bathroom, like an, in, like an indoor bathroom. <laughs> and uh, so I wash my hands after I flip on the faucet and the water that comes out of that faucet is running and it is warm. And I hadn't felt warm water for a month. And when that water hit my hands, I had the biggest smile on my face that I've ever had. And it held for like 20 minutes. Like it was so amazing. Now think of how often you use hot water in your life and you're just like, it's just there, right? So we have all these unbelievable, unbelievable things in our lives right now that we totally take for granted. Like you just don't even think about them. And by taking that stuff really for granted, you're missing out on a lot of gratitude you could have. And gratitude is like the best thing that can happen to a person for their happiness levels. I mean, like since that trip, it's like, I don't, I don't really complain that much. Cause I realize, like in the grand scheme of time and space, like the problems that I have in my life are, are pretty meaningless. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. Like, I'm not saying the world doesn't have problems like in, in the US, like we do, and we need to co constantly be improving. But I think a lot of what sort of captivates the average person's brain most day that they think our problems are like not a big deal. 